Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jocelyn Fry, president of the National Partnership for Women and Families. Jocelyn brings to the role more than 35 years of experience fighting for economic justice, equitable health care, civil rights, and reproductive freedom across the legal, nonprofit, and government sectors. I first met Jocelyn in 2009 when she was deputy assistant to the president and director of policy and special projects for First Lady Michelle Obama. It's a unique role in the White House, made even more special by Jocelyn's personal relationship to the First Lady. They first became friends when they were classmates at Harvard Law. Many years later at the White House, Jocelyn gave shape to and led the First Lady's advocacy on several issues related to children and families, most notably children's health and well-being and supporting military families. Jocelyn's background for that job was perfect. She had spent the preceding 16 years at the National Partnership, where she was first staff attorney and then general counsel. And before that, she spent six years at the well-regarded law firm Kroll & Mooring, where she did both pro bono and corporate work. After the White House, Jocelyn returned to advocacy and joined the Center for American Progress as a senior fellow. There, she led CAP's Women's Initiative, which advances policies such as narrowing the gender pay gap and combating gender-based discrimination. In 2021, Jocelyn returned to the National Partnership. She is the organization's third president and the first Black woman to serve in that position. I am so pleased to present this conversation to you today. It was really an honor and a pleasure to talk with Jocelyn, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed producing it. Jocelyn and I recorded on Friday, December 8th. Jocelyn Fry, welcome to Staffer. Thank you. It is great to be here with you. I am so happy to be talking with you today, and I really appreciate your making the time. Um, As you may know, with these interviews, I like to start at the beginning. I like to find out where people grew up and what home life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I'm a native Washingtonian, uh, and we do exist. Uh, I grew up in Northeast D.C. in an area called Michigan Park, um, and my parents were federal government workers, like many folks in D.C., um, and they worked in the federal government for um, both of them for over 30 years. And I'm an only child, so I'm used to, A, getting my way um, (laughs) and, you know, not having to, you know, uh, share with (laughs) with too many people. Um, And, you know, it it was great. You know, I love D.C. um, uh, and what I often call the real D.C. with real people um, and knew that I always wanted to come back here. And so were you into politics and policy at an early age? Like, how did you meet, you know, this field? You know, it's funny. I decided when I was in fourth grade, I was going to be a lawyer. Now, I don't know really if I understood what that meant. You know, I I think I just thought they were people in court. Um, um, But I, you know, I like to debate people. And when I was in high school, for a long time, I said I wanted to be the first woman president um, Uh and was always, you know, sort of interested in politics. Um, You know, you can't grow up in D.C. and not be aware of politics. Um, um, But I think as I got older, 
older actually and and saw what that really looked like in the real world, I was much more interested in being behind the scenes um, and sort of just doing the work. Um, but I, you know, I suspect that if, you know, some um, uh, scientist really delved into why that little fourth grade kid wanted to be a lawyer, some of it had to do with doing social good mm-hmm. um, and uh, some sense of, uh, you could fix people's problems. And I thought that was something important to do. Yeah. That, that is something about Washington that is special in that the, yes, it's a company town and we're dedicated, it's, you know, and people's jobs are either in the government or related to the government. But at its base, we're looking for problems to solve, right? And, and we may not do that really efficiently. And we may not do that in a way that's pleasant to look at. Um, but that is really what the beating heart of the town is supposed to be about. Right. I, I think that that's right. And I think um, there's also a sense of when it's not being done the way it needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the things I was very keenly aware of as a, 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 a child and growing up is the public persona of D.C. that, you know, politicians often wanted to go back home and talk about D.C. in often not a very positive way um, that had, you know, a lot of racial overtones, economic overtones, um, juxtaposed against real people who, you know, struggled like everybody else in the country and needed real solutions to their problems. And it was always something that bothered me that people like to sort of caricature us and, you know, use us as a proxy for every sort of terrible thing they wanted to say about different groups of people. Um, And I thought um, people deserved better. Um, You know, so that for me um, was always something that motivated me. Yeah. And it, it still does. I mean, it's been that, that is a through line to your whole life. Mm-hmm. You uh, went from Michigan Park to University of Michigan uh, to study for undergrad. Um, and then you went to Harvard Law School. So the, the dream of the fourth grader, my God, uh, came true. It is true. It, you know, much to the chagrin of my mother, she kept wanting to know, why did I want to go to Michigan? Which I, you know, I picked out of our, our encyclopedia. I just, I <laughs> opened it up and Mich- University of Michigan was there. And I was like, that's where I'm going. Um, and, and she was, you know, slightly horrified. And I think thought I would grow out of it. And I was like, no. Um, uh, but uh, it turned out to be the right path for me. Um. Okay, so I a, an important relationship was formed at uh, at Harvard Law School. Um, you go, and one of your classmates becomes a lifelong friend, um, and that friend later becomes the first lady of the United States. So, tell me, when you first met Michelle Obama, what you know? You guys obviously have been lifelong friends now. What brought you together? Right? What 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 did you see in one another, and what do you have in common? What do you like about one another? Um, you know, that's a great question. Um, we were, you know, we're um, in the same class, but, you know, our law school had four sections. We were not in the same section. Um, so we met halfway through our first year. Um, 
And I think probably what connected us, and we had a another um, classmate um, who was also a good friend of ours. And I think in many ways, um, even though we were from different communities, we had similar backgrounds. Um, you know, we were certainly of that generation of young students who excelled um, and because we excelled, we were in often schools that were, you know, predominantly white, mm-hmm. um, but where, um, you know, we were able to participate and excel, where people sometimes were skeptical, um, you know, you should only aspire to do this and not that. Um, but I, I also think, you know, we both came from very regular backgrounds. We were regular people. Um, uh, who lived pretty normal lives with, um, you know, in our families. And I think, um, you know, sometimes in elite spaces, um, particularly law schools that focus sometimes on theory and not on the real world, you crave connecting to people who seem like you. Um, that in that she's really funny very likable. And, you know, we had a good time and enjoyed each other. Um, And you need that too in law school, which is often not funny, or at least not intentionally so, Um, and uh, can be stressful in all the things. Um, So I think somewhere in there we met um, and realized I like this person (laughs) and and then uh, stayed connected. Well, and those those experiences, you know, like Harvard Law School, um, those are those are really hot kitchens to be in. You know, I mean, they, that's an experience that is hard, and you know, forging a bond with somebody in one of those types of circumstances really is a is a special type of friendship. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Um, you know, I think whenever you're in those, um, you know, high pressure situations, you look for people um, who you think understand what you're going through and um, who you share something with um, and who seem eminently normal. Uh, and all of those things were true about her. Um, you know, she was good people then. She's good people now. Yeah. Um, yes, well, we're, we're going to return, um, to your, your reconnection, but after law school, you then come home, you come back to Washington, DC, you join the law firm, Kroll and Mooring, very highly reputable firm. Um, it's the fulfillment of a childhood dream as we talked about. So, um, tell us about what you worked on. Well, I was, uh, in, uh, an area, practice area called, um, we called it business crimes, but it was also an area called defense procurement fraud, um, which may not sound exciting and to many maybe isn't exciting, but there were basically criminal cases in the sort of government contracting context. And ah. I was very interested in the criminal law. Um, and so the, that 
um, body of work interested me. Um, I also did a fair amount of pro bono work. Um, you know, I uh, helped to be a, a counsel to a PTA at a local elementary school um, and worked with a, a local group um, focused on uh, language minority uh, challenges in public schools. Um, so I, I knew early on that I wanted to do public interest work. Um, but I, I enjoyed my time in the firm. You know, I stayed longer than I anticipated. I was like, I hope I just make it a year. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, four and a half years later, there I was still. Um, yeah. um, but you know, I, I had a good experience. So after the firm, as I understand, that is when you first joined the National Partnership for Women and Families, first as a staff attorney, and then eventually you became the organization's general counsel. Today, you're the group's president. And I'm, I'm going to return uh, to the National Partnership because I want to talk about what you're working on today. Um, but as I understand, during that period of time um, where the, the Family Medical Leave Act was, you know, in its infancy, you had a really important role. Um, so can you talk about, you know, where you cross paths with that law in its early stages? Absolutely. So, I, you know, I started at, you know, what was then the Women's Legal Defense Fund. We changed our name in the 90s. Um, but when I started, we were still the Women's Legal Defense Fund. We had led a nine-year fight for the Family and Medical Leave Act. And it was the first law that President Clinton signed. And I started at the Women's Legal Defense Fund not long after that, in um, April of 1993. And one of the first assignments I had was, you know, working on regulations that were going to be um, issued and commenting on the regulations. Um, there was also a family leave commission um, that had been created. And one of my colleagues, I believe, was the vice chair. And uh, the commission was created to basically study the implementation of leave. And I, I think... You know, what we have to remember is that the idea of taking time off um, for caregiving, even unpaid leave, was a novel idea. And in that way, the law was really groundbreaking. Um, and so they created a commission to study it, to make sure, you know, it wasn't crazy, um, even though we were really clear it was what was needed. So, you know, that early work was really focused on that. Um, and also what I would call basic equal employment opportunity issues. We, you know, monitored how the government enforced equal pay laws, um, employment discrimination laws. We met with agencies about that enforcement, where we thought it was lacking and what we thought it, they could do to strengthen it. And that was really our work um, uh, uh, in those early days. So the, the Family Medical Leave Act is in its 30th year, uh, this year in 2023. And, you know, now the debate is about how do we provide paid leave and how do we expand leave for different types of life events? You know, FMLA, hugely important. And as you really described it, it, it was a landmark law. In retrospect, it certainly seems so obvious, so desperately needed. How could it have taken so long to pass? And, it, you know, it was at least a nine-year fight. What, 
you know, what is your advice to people who are working on issues today that, you know, they're pushing hard, they're having setbacks, they just, they can't see it yet where it gets signed by the president of the United States? I think what I'd say is, you know, you keep pressing, you keep, you keep fighting for it. You know, at the time, I know folks thought that nine years was a really long time. It was a long time. It was too long. But, you know, change takes time, particularly when you're talking about not simply changing law, but changing culture. You know, you know, part of the reason that the fight for paid leave that you allude to that we are very much involved with is taking so long is that we're just used to women doing a set of things that we don't pay them to do. Right. And and we and our economy is built on it. Um, and so when you say we actually ought to think differently about it, we actually ought to think about how do you support not only women, but men and all sorts of folks who now do caregiving and really, you know, strengthen workers um, uh, and support workers, particularly women of color who are doing this work. Um, it makes a lot of sense from a logical perspective, you know, from an intelligence perspective. But changing sort of practice takes hard time. It takes a long time. So I encourage people to keep pressing. And, you know, on the fight for paid leave, you know, we have setbacks, but we have wins. Um, and, you know, every win gets you closer. And it, and it, I think it helps to confirm the inevitability of change. Um, as opposed to operating as if it's not possible. And, you know, for me, on all of these fights, you know, what I often remind myself of is when you think about the full breadth of progress that has been made over decades, you realize that, you know, there's a lot of progress that we've made that people thought we would never make. Um, and thought this this isn't possible. So we we've gotten this far and we'll keep going. Um, And I would encourage people to think about it um, in that way. Yeah, I am. You know, when you were talking about the commission to study, right, uh, leave, it sometimes those things can just feel so depressing, right? Because, oh, a commission to study. And, you know, when you want an end goal, settling for a commission or having a commission as an add-on doesn't feel very significant. But when you look back on the history, sometimes those things do become a little toehold that you utilize later, right? Yeah, absolutely. So pausing to reflect some of those small wins, it's a rocky surface. And anytime you find a toehold or something to grab onto, it can be it can uh, have an outsized impact down the road. Well, I think I think that that's right. I mean, I, I um, you know, I think what it reminds me of is sometimes what feels small you look back on and it's big and vice versa right like Mm -hmm. at the time i think it felt like a big accomplishment to have this mechanism to talk about the breadth of support for paid leave and so even though in you know it may not have seemed like a lot it was important to begin to establish a record of why leave made enormous sense it didn't you know detract from the workplace it didn't make workers less productive it didn't harm an employer's bottom line because that was the narrative yes throughout the entire um 
the entire debate. And we see those arguments continue to rear their heads. The arguments that people made against the FMLA, they now make against paid leave. And what helps us to combat it is the fact that we do have decades of history whether it's in a commission, whether it's now because there are laws in different states. Um, there have been so many, you know, pieces of research, I can't possibly even count it. And that it helps to push back on a narrative that sometimes is nothing more than rhetoric about slowing down progress. Um, so, you know, I think you have to just take each piece as it comes to you. Um, and, you know, it may seem, as you said, inconsequential now, but it also may be a small stepping stone to the progress you need down the line. And, um, you know, we, we do all of those things. We do the small things, we do the medium things and the big things. And eventually, you know, we're going to get it over the finish line and then we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, some of those small things really become important when the political winds shift in your favor, right? I mean, there are some times where you're just never going to get what you want because the dynamics of the leadership aren't in your favor. And 2009 was one of those moments for progressive priorities. And uh, you were asked to join the White House. You became deputy assistant to the president and director of policy and special projects for the first lady. Um, I mean, an amazing, amazing like set of <laughs> facts and circumstances that led to this moment. Right. Um, can you talk about the role, right? So talk about the role that you had and how one goes about working with the first lady to develop a set of, of policy priorities that are reflective of her that, you know, and, you know, her, her true interests and also have a pathway for really making progress. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I tell people, um, uh, when I was asked to join, I, I joke about it because I, 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 I met with the, um, who, the person who was going to become her chief of staff and she described this job to me and I said, it sounds great love it. And she said, well, write me a one-year plan. What would you do in year one? And, you know, she, um, I think said, you know, the first lady, I tell people she, she knew the issues she wanted to work on. So I, um, I wrote up something and I sent it to, uh, the chief of staff, and she said, this looks great. And she said, well, why don't you come on in? We're going to start meeting. We're interviewing people for this, that. And I said to my then boss, I said, I I think I got it. but Because <laughs> now she just tells me I'm supposed to come to all these meetings <laughs> right, and, we're, and we're hiring people and stuff. So I, I think <laughs> I've, I've got it. But, um, uh, and then in December, I believe we met with the first lady and the team that had been assembled. And she talked a lot about what she wanted to do. Um, but most importantly in that conversation, she said, essentially, you know, we don't have to do anything. You know, the, the first lady's role is completely undefined. And, and, you know, her goal was to support the agenda of the president and to figure out where we could be helpful in that regard and put, I, I think, a real, real world face 
on policy problems that sometimes can seem very esoteric and technical. And so very early on, before we ever worked walked in the door, I knew a little bit about what she wanted to work on. And more importantly, I understood how she wanted to work on it, to be really a value add, to think about what are the issues that make the most sense, where we can amplify, lift up policy solutions, but sort of put a real world face on the problem. And the other thing she said, particularly as we walked in the door, was that she wasn't really interested in just doing photo ops or just doing stuff just to say she did it. If we were going to work on an issue, we needed to think through what was the problem we were trying to solve and what's a pathway to solve it. And, you know, my task, along with, you know, my colleagues who worked on policy, you know, I had a wonderful deputy, Trooper Sanders, who um, worked on uh, the policy team and Sam Cass led a lot of our work around Let's Move and and. Uh, healthy eating. And our task was to talk to people, to talk to the other experts in the building on DPC and agencies and build out what does a campaign look like? What does it mean to tackle childhood obesity? How do you actually do this in a way that you bring people in and you don't shut people out? And uh, that's how we went about it. Um, you know, we, we started with, um, you know, sort of a work plan, but, you know, the work plan, is your work plan until you change it. Um, there's some of it that we built out and went with it. And it was, you know, pretty much on target the entire time. There was some stuff we did less of. Um, but it really started with her. Um, you know, the issues, the priorities, childhood obesity, military families, you know, later getting to work around, let girls learn. And those were her issues. Um, uh, even, um, you know, we started a mentoring program, um, that was her idea. Um, and, you know, I always chuckle because the first time she said it, I, I heard it, but I sort of ignored it. (laughs) She was like, she wanted a mentoring program. And I was like, (laughs) okay, that sounds great. And, (laughs) and, and I didn't really do anything until the second time she says, I want (laughs) a mentoring program. That too is sometimes part of being a staffer. It is true. Is not responding to everything. It is true. It's true. You know, because I, I didn't, it's not like I didn't think she meant it, but I was like, okay, yeah. But when she said it the second time, I was like, okay, I, I think that I have to figure out how to do a mentoring program. So, um, you know, uh, she set her agenda uh, and was really clear that she wanted to figure out how we could have impact. Um, and uh, that, you know, in many ways sort of made it easier. Um, you yeah. know, I didn't have to come up with issues for her or figure it out. You know, she knew where she wanted to go. And, um, you know, our task was to try to help build it out so we could do it in the way she wanted authentically and mm-hmm. hopefully strategically where we could actually achieve some results. One of my favorite um, things to ask people about being a staffer is what it's like to brief the boss. Right. So either before an event or doing the, you know, here's the here's the policy discussion. Here's what you need to know. What you know, what sort of things did you find yourself preparing for because you knew the first lady was going to ask you about? Um, You know, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, she usually wanted to know about sort of what we were trying to get out of this particular event and who were the people she was going to encounter and why. Um, you know, as you well know, you give people a, a briefing memo. You tell them, you know, here's the people in the room. Here's the setup here, you know, sort of how we plan to proceed. Um, and you walk through that. Um and, you know, leave the door open if there are questions and things like that. But usually what she really wanted to know was the substance, you know, who who's going to be there? What do we expect the conversation to look like? Um, and, you know, sometimes, uh, um, particularly with the principal, when you um, expect them to lead a conversation, um, they want to know you know, what direction you want to go? Are there specific questions we need to get out of the person? And also, are there different people in the room that I need to call on for different reasons? Um, you know, the, the, the thing that can and does happen is that even best laid plans can go awry, sometimes because people get nervous in front of the first lady or the president. Of course. And, yes. And so um, even if you have mapped it out and you told people this is what's going to happen, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't quite work that way. Um, but, uh, you know, the first lady was a pro and, and knew how to navigate those situations. So, you know, I will say one of my favorite, if not my favorite photo from being in the White House is when I was briefing her. I was on a, we were on a plane from New York to Georgia. We were in the midst of the let's move rollout and we were headed to a school in Atlanta. And I was on the plane briefing her about here's, Here's the um, run of show and what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, usually she had done her homework, so I wasn't telling her anything new. Um, and it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, but that is a quintessential moment. I'm glad it was, like, captured. Right, I know. For you. I know. Um, is, there, is there a project that you worked on, an issue that you worked on, a moment that you look back on with particular findings and think, yeah, we helped do that? There are lots of different moments that stick with me. I, I will say, um, you know, there were uh, many um, different events around healthy eating and let's move that, you know, were um, really wonderful for me. I think one of the early visits that she made to Bancroft Elementary School, which was the school that partnered with her on a lot of the Let's Move work, um, um, were fun. You know, the kids were excited to see her. Um, and uh, I took great pleasure in her just going to different parts of D.C. She, one of her first visits outside of the White House was to a place called Mary Center, where she visited with some little kids um, at a really preeminent um, healthcare um, facility in Adams Morgan. Um, and then she went to Miriam's Kitchen, which um, served healthy food to folks who were homeless. Um, and she went to Anacostia High School, which would arguably not have been on the list of many presidents and first ladies uh, in the heart of Southeast DC. And all of those visits for me 
were personal because they showcase different parts of the city that often get ignored, but yet presented them in a way um, where people presented them with dignity and gave uh, with respect. And it meant something that the First Lady of the United States was taking time to go and spend her time there. Yeah. So those are the moments that stick with me, less about issues and more about those visits, in part because it was a reminder to me about her impact, but also the impact that I could bring. You know, part of what I was able to do as a native Washingtonian who had been working on policy for a very long time is I could say things like, you really ought to go here and not there because it will mean this. Um, and she was very clear, I don't want to just go to the places that where no one has any problems, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. the marquee place. I want to go to places where, you know, schools with challenges because it's important for students to see her and it's important for folks to know that she is interested in learning about what's going on on the ground. Um, so when I think of, when people ask me that type of question, you know, that's usually what I think about the most. I, you yeah. know, I remember, you know, just, um, uh, I remember vividly when she went to Anacostia High School, the students didn't know she was coming and they just started screaming. Yes. Um, and, you know, that, was incredibly moving. I still get chills from that um, because it. I knew how important it was for her to be there. And I knew that I played a part in that. Yes. Um, and that was important. Having the first Black family in the White House was a thunderclap um, when it happened on election night. But I think what you're describing is something that a lot of people don't realize that it was a thunderclap every time she visited a school, mm -hmm. right? That emotional outpouring was significant for different reasons than it had been in American history right. prior to that. Right. So something that folks may or may not know, um, both the Office of Legislative Affairs, where I worked, and the First Lady's Office are in the East Wing of the White House. They're right across the hall from one another. And that happens to be where most people uh, when they're taking a public tour of the White House, also enter. And one of my absolute favorite things in the world was if I was like leaving to you know, go up to Capitol Hill, I would see families coming into the White House for the very first time. And there are amazing photographs that kind of line the hallway and they're changed every week. New photos of the president, the first lady and the family doing, you know, all sorts of different things. And the faces in particular of Black families, when they walked in and got about five steps in and started looking at the photos, there is, there's nothing that can really capture that sentiment of its import and the way, and like, you know, you'd see parents put their hands on their kids' shoulders, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't get as much access to that as you did. I was not as close to the president or first lady as, as you were. That is absolutely a critical and, and historical impact that they had in small moments for eight straight years. It is true. It's true. You, you're absolutely right. And it's great to see it up close and personal. Um, but I would also say, um, uh, I think what was powerful about it is that it is certainly true that 
Black families in particular took great pride in their being there, but it was not only them. Um, of you know, I, 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 I remember two distinct moments. Um, uh, we did an event in the White House very early um, that was um, where we invited a number of students to come. It was, um, uh, I think, Women's History Month, and we had young women come from all over, schools all over the community. And, uh, and we had a lovely event. And then when they left, they, the students sort of organically, you know, formed a line to shake her hand as she was leaving. We didn't plan that, but, you know, one did it and then she shook. And so she started shaking these hands. And this young student, teenager, young white woman got up to her and just started boohooing just mm-hmm. tears. She was so overcome. And, you know, the floatus, you know, she hugged her and everything. And she couldn't even say anything. Like, you know, what do you say? She And she, you know, thanked her and then off she went. And I just, I always remember because, you know, it the power of their presence was felt across many different communities and many different ways. And, and, you know, I certainly saw, you know, we were at Mississippi, something similar, young black girl, she was lovely, was a participant in the program, soft lotus and boohooed. But when she had to do her part, she was phenomenal. Um, And so uh, it was great to see those moments. Um, And it is certainly true that, you know, I think, you know, the black community in particular took great pride, but I think a lot of people just enjoyed being in their presence. And, you know, for me, particularly in a political environment that can be so highly divisive and partisan, one of the things that I often reflect on the most is that when you go out in the country with with Flotus, with Michelle Obama, um, uh, you often see the best of us because there were plenty of folks I know who were not of the same party, maybe had not even voted for the president. But when you call them and say, the first lady wants to come and visit your school or visit your community, they take great pride in that. And um, those interactions were incredibly powerful and positive. Far outweighed the minor situations where there were negatives, they were overwhelmingly positive. And it was a reminder of how much people um, can find in common and can act, interact together. And the power that she had just to be, you know, um, well-liked and authentic, right? Like that, yeah. that was her skill and ability. It continues to be. Um, and so I often found those just really positive. Um, and uh, it, I think in many ways, her ability to do that across race was powerful, um, even though um, it is certainly the case that folks were so proud um, of, that entire family and they continue to be and they continue to be you know with good reason it's so well put you're right yeah we did something good as a country and we're still proud right of that and to your point it's a bit you know it crosses politics in america to look at them and say they are fundamentally decent people right right 
and and reflective of something that is us being our best angels. Right. It's something uh, else I want to uh, just mention since we were talking about the the East Wing. Something that you helped make happen that was not policy, and I only learned of it recently, and that is. Prior to the Obama administration, there had not been a place for nursing mothers in the, who worked in the White House to go and express milk. And when you became aware of this, you solved that problem. And I know how much it meant to my colleague who thanked you for it when I saw you recently in Chicago. That's how I learned of the story. Right. And the history books would not record that. But I, that is really important, and I think it's very illustrative of who you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I, you know, it was so funny that um, that she remembered it, and I, you know, I do remember um, because there wasn't a place for her to go, and so she had to find different places in the East Wing to, you know pump breast milk, of course, a nursing mother would need to do that. And um, I will say it was a group effort. I raised the, you know, I remember saying to somebody, I think I just heard somebody, you know, like in the ladies room, I was like, this is unacceptable and we need to figure it out. And, you know, we had meetings and there were a handful of folks and one of my colleagues, you know, we had to figure out what was the space that was possible. You know, the the, the White House is a beautiful building, but it's an old building. Um, and, uh, you know, many of the spaces might not be conducive for a variety of reasons. And um, we had to sort of figure it out. And she, you know, there were like short term solutions but at the end of the day we needed a space and um and we wanted a space in each building right like there were three sure. main buildings that so, you know we were in the east wing the main residence but we wanted a space in the you know eisenhower building and we wanted one in the new executive office building um so um it's it's a good memory that we were able to solve the problem um uh, i i will not take full credit for it because it was definitely <laughs> a group effort um but we you know collectively um, addressed it and I think solved it for her and, and for other people. That's right. People who will be benefiting and families will be benefiting from that for many years. Yes, uh, yes. Um, so let me get uh, to your current job. Uh, you are president of the National Partnership. Um, you are only the third president in its 52-year history. Uh, you are the first Black woman to uh, serve in that role. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the National Partnership, and by the way, I happen to have been familiar with it from early days of my when I first came to Washington because I worked for Rosa DeLauro. And when you work for Rosa DeLauro, you become familiar with organizations that punch above their weight class on policy and advocacy, and the partnership does. Um, but not everyone uh, knows the National Partnership. So can you tell us about what you're working on and what the organization does? Ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rosa DeLauro is, she is just, she's wonderful in every way. Um, the, and as you said, the National Partnership for Women and Families, we are now 52 years old. Um, and we began as a women's legal rights organization, um, really fighting for um, equity for women, um, uh, in our early days, we litigated cases like some of the earliest sexual harassment cases, um, and then eventually um, decided to focus solely on policy advocacy. And, um, you know, our goal is really just to create 
a society where women can lead the lives they want to lead and where gender is never a barrier to people realizing their dreams. And we focus on um, economic security, economic justice, um, and health justice. And that means for us working on a variety of economic security, work family policy issues, and also a lot of work around maternal health, reproductive health, and transforming healthcare systems so that they work for women. Um, we are multi-issue and um, you know, often our work is to connect the dots for people. You know, women don't live in silos. Um, they don't just have one issue. They have multiple issues. Um, so we try to tell that story, talk about policies that will help them, do the research in support of those policies, and then try to craft a strategy to get those policies over the finish line. Um, and we've been doing that for 52 years. Um, uh, and we, we're keeping, we're going to keep going. <laughs> so you were at the National Partnership before you were a White House staffer. Then, you know, you were in the White House um, for several years, five or six, something like uh, that? Four, four, like four and a half. Four and, four and, and a half. half. Yeah. Um, and now you are leading the organization and an advocate again. So what, you know, uh, how does your, did your experience as a staffer inform how you approach advocacy? Uh, that's a great question. And I tell people that my experience in government, for me, was actually really transformative. Because when you are an advocate, and I was an advocate for almost 16 years, you you have the luxury sometime of just saying, I want you to do X. Here's the issue. Here's our solution. Go do it. And you can... Um, keep pressing on just that solution. Um, when you are in government and when you are a staffer, uh, that is not sufficient. Sometimes the solutions are really clear and they work. And sometimes what people want to do is not possible for whatever set of reasons, or you have to come up with a new idea. And, you know, for me, my time in the administration really required me to think concretely about how are we going to get from A to Z? What's the solution? If we thought it was going to be solution A, but it's not going to work, what is solution B? Who can help us? What pieces, how far can we get that type of thing? And having the capacity to be nimble and quick and adjust and think about many different ways to get to the end, end goal was a skill that I I intellectually understood, but when you have to actually practice it to get it over the finish line, it really stuck with me. And it stuck with me when we had to come up with solutions rather than advocates, because the advocates wanted to stick with one policy idea that they had come up with, as opposed to making the adjustment to sort of move as the circumstances required. So, you know, now when I reflect back on it, and I think, you know, coming out of that experience, you know, one of the things that I'm very cognizant of is that, you know, you have your plan A, and you say, this is what you want 
we want you to do. But if that's not going to work or the, you know, for whatever set of reasons, the administration can't do it, we've got to be able to move to plan B and plan C and have a lot of different ways how you can get to the solution that you want um, and, you know, figure out how do you put all those pieces together. And that for me was an important learning um, and it continues to inform how I, you know, operate now. Um, You know, I, I, before the administration might have been more inclined to say, here's our one solution and it's either this or nothing or it's not a win. And I think, you know, that's not a good position for us to be in because if you even get an answer, it's not viewed as a win because you sort of set it up one way and said you only want one thing and nothing else. And, you know, sometimes we have to have the flexibility and the agility to be able to adjust and say this solution may not be where we started, but it's where we ended and where we ended was actually pretty good Um, and take it as a win and you keep moving. Um, so, yeah. you know, for me, learning that and seeing how it worked in person um, and seeing in practice how you had to sort of shift and move and come up with different ideas and solutions was a good experience for me to have. Yeah. So now as president of the National Partnership, you receive a lot of staff work. And having been a staffer, um, and now you hire staffers and rely on on their work, what do you look for in a staffer? Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, you know, because <laughs> truthfully, I'm still adjusting to being the principal. I am like perpetually a staffer, <laughs> and so one of the you know, for, you know. For, I think for I think if you asked people, they would tell you that you know part of the thing that I'm still learning is trying to let go. And uh-huh. letting people be the staff, you know, as opposed to me. And I can relate, um, yeah. so, so that's, you know, sort of my learning. You know, I think what I look for is people who ask good questions, people who are um, thorough, and um, people who are, um, um, you know, willing to sort of do sort of the, you know, the preparation, um, you know, for me, I like to, I ask lots of questions and often like a lot of information. Um, um, so all of those things are important for me. Um, but I would also say what I appreciate, um, about people is that they sort of learn me, right? Like everybody is different, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and everybody sort of has their style of how, sort of how they roll, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just need somebody who understands, you know, how, how I do it. And it might not be the same for everybody else. You know, I usually, um, you know, I like to have some prep work. But once, you know, I got it, I got it. You know, I, I don't stand on a lot of formality. Um, um, I tend not to be the person who... Um, I don't really like to read statements. I, I will like if something is time limited, but usually I like just to get it, read it. So I understand what it is that I need to sort of put forward and then sort of run with it. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it's, it is more about people having a sense of sort of what I need the most and then going from there. Um, um, and so having that flexibility for me is what's um, 
most important. Um, yeah. Um, more so than anything else. Okay, so I may be doing a service here for the people who work at National Partnership, but what is your pet peeve? What is your staffer pet peeve? <laughs> you oh see something God. and you're like, oh, that's under my skin. It's pet, not pet peeve is not quite the right word, but it's something that actually does annoy me. I once worked with somebody who I supervised who, when I edited things, I like to edit, I like to write, I like people who are good writers. I like to write and I like to edit. That is sort of how I am. And I and I edit myself constantly and I edit mm-hmm. documents constantly. So it's not a critique to edit. I always edit. I sort of feel like I'm not doing my job if I don't edit something. Mm-hmm. And so I edited documents and then the person who was, you know, fairly junior to me would edit over me and make the changes and 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 then produce the document and i <laughs> i was confused by it right like I, at first yes. i thought did i, I not make this edit and yeah. i and and she said yeah but i you know i thought it was this this and this and i was like mm, no like if i make the edit like I need right. to know that I did it for a reason and I need to make sure it's here. Um, and so that was, that definitely annoyed me. Um, and the um, one or two times that she did it afterwards annoyed me until it became clear that it, it could not be done anymore. <laughs> and, so yeah. then, right. and so then it stopped. But, you know, um, every <laughs> once in a while, um, I, I have not really encountered that here, but it is like right. a little bit of a pet peeve, right? Like, yes, oh, that understandable. <laughs> editing is not, it, it, there is, it's something called the editing process and it's hierarchical. It, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean it in a bad way. No, but, that's you know, the way it happens. You know, like when you meticulously labor over something, it's like mm, that's crazy. No, no. no. Okay, we are we are coming up on time, and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I've got uh, just two more questions for you, uh, both of which I like to ask my guests. One, is there a time where you made a mistake, and can you tell us about it and what you learned from it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was uh, when I was very young, in one of my early jobs. I had to answer phones and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, in, I won't get into the details, but in DC government and I had to answer phones and people would call and they would ask for a particular department and I would give them the phone number to call. And I was very meticulous about doing that. And about halfway through my job, I discovered the phone number I was giving them was to the precisely the wrong office and the department that they were asking for was the number where I was answering. Like I didn't understand the right name of the department. (laughs) And so, and so they kept in part because people used um, um, a shorthand way of referring to the department. So I, the young person was like, no, our department is called X, Y, and Z, but really people used a shorthand. So all these people have been calling, asking for the department. I was like, no, I'm sorry. but you can call here. And I, and the only reason I knew the mistake is because I met someone who said, we keep getting these phone calls for your department. And I was like, oh, I think it's because I'm sending them to you. But I, you know, I didn't say that. I just said, oh, isn't that interesting? Um, Let me go talk to the 
right. the people who are answering the phones. It's true. <laughs> and I never told anybody that, but I I, I always felt bad that those That's people hilarious. had been calling the department asking for us. Like, I don't know that department, but I can send you <laughs> elsewhere uh, and, you know, live and learn. I think the, the, lesson, right. the lesson is make sure you actually know the name of the place you're working. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, hilarious. This segment, I call that in the vault. Right. So the fact that you haven't shared that story, but for here, I really, I'm very appreciative. Thank you. Um, okay, my last question for you. I have this uh, this fantastic notion that one day I will be able to raise the money and get the permitting to build a national hall of fame to staffers on the National Mall. If I were to do that, who would you nominate for the Staffer <laughs> Hall of Fame? You know, that is an excellent question. Um, I think... I would nominate, this is a, it's a tough choice, of but course. I believe I would nominate uh, Trooper Sanders. Trooper was the deputy policy person for the first lady. Um, and he handled uh, military families. Um, he is a wonderful person um, and was, you know, meticulous, diligent, and often wasn't above um, doing really crazy things that I asked him to do, like kill a bug in the office. <laughs> or maybe, not that there are bugs in the White House, but maybe I saw one. But, <laughs> right. um, and, you know, and he did that dutifully, which was really quite lovely of him. Um, and, you know, late evenings, he might be willing to go get some, you know, like frozen yogurt from the White House mess. And so he put up, he put up with me um, and, uh, you know, was, you know, just, you know, a good person. So I would, I, I think I would nominate him, but it's close. I love it. That's a great nomination. And this has been a great conversation, Jocelyn. I really, I can't thank you enough for making the time. I am such an admirer of yours. Um, I am so thrilled that we crossed paths at the White House and then again recently in Chicago. Um, the the through line of your life of starting as a fourth grader who wanted to make a difference and to look at what you have done and are doing today, it is just so fantastic and such an inspiration and Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. Those are very kind words. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's um, I'm very fortunate that I've had some wonderful jobs and worked with some wonderful people, including you, um, and have been able to do a lot of what I wanted to do, even if I didn't always have the words for it. Um, uh, you know, somehow I landed here. Uh, and it's been, you know, quite the ride and, um, I'll just keep going, but I appreciate it. And I appreciate chatting with you. I'm so glad that we ran into each other, um, and appreciate your good questions. Um, I appreciate your keeping that story in the vault, because uh, <laughs> I feel bad about that. Uh-oh, but, uh-oh. But, but, <laughs> I'm just editing. I know, but it's, it's, <laughs> and it's been good to chat with you. Likewise. Thank you again. Absolutely. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 
Thanks all. 